to the Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. I am Sonny Bunch, culture editor at the Bulwark. Uh, I'm pleased to be joined today by Peter Labuza. Uh, he is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Southern California, where he also earned his PhD in cinema and media studies. His research explores the legal, financial, and political history of creative industries. And I wanted to talk to Peter today because Peter uh, is one of the smarter people that I know on the issue of antitrust and antitrust uh, rules specifically as they apply to Hollywood. Uh, it's a obviously a kind of a weird moment in in time with regard to theaters and studios and all of that. The Paramount decrees, uh, of course, which were the rules that had for a long time governed how antitrust worked with regard to studios and theaters and all that were rolled back uh, in, in the last few years here. But we don't know exactly what antitrust is going to look like going forward and we are in a weird age of consolidation so i thought it was interesting i thought it would be interesting to talk to peter and get his uh, take on both the history of antitrust as it relates to hollywood and kind of what we can look forward to um in the in the years to come here as as things continue to change thank you for joining me peter i'm very excited to be here sonny thanks so much for inviting me uh, so let's let's talk a little bit about the history of antitrust as it relates to Hollywood. Uh, you know, people I say Paramount decrees, and I expect people to know what that means, but of course, a lot of people don't. Um, so what 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 were the Paramount decrees, and how how did they kind of shape how Hollywood worked for a long for decades? Right. So if we go back to what a lot of people call the classical Hollywood cinema, this is like movies from the 1930s through to the, about the mid 1940s. Um, you have to reimagine the way that movies were made and where you saw movies in a lot of ways. So there was basically to give you the, the quick by the um, movies come to Los Angeles around the turn of the century and they start growing up and just there's a lot of small businesses. There's everyone's just trying to make a buck in this new industry. And then by the mid 1920s to early 30s, you sort of consolidate around five major studios. This would be Metro Goldwyn Mayer, MGM, Paramount, Warner Brothers, uh, what have been RKO Radio Pictures, which doesn't exist anymore. Um, and I'm going to forget the last one. There were also minor, smaller studios. This would be like Columbia Pictures, which is now part of Sony, of course, uh, Disney, uh, United Artists. Um, but the way that the studios made money and why they were so successful was that they produced all the films, they distributed them to theaters, but they also had a lot of control of the theaters themselves. In major downtown areas, you were more likely to go to the Paramount Theater or the Warner's Theater um, than to go to a theater, say, owned by Regal or now AMC would be kind of the major ones that we recognize today. Um, and then in other spaces, uh, more local, like your more rural theaters, um, the theaters had to follow the studios a lot. And the way that they mostly did this was called a process called block booking. Uh, the quick and easy way to do it is that film studios would sell movies in 12 blocks. So you'd buy 12 movies at a time. And the way that um, these big movie companies would send it to small companies, uh, these small local places, is you get one Clark Gable, Joan Crawford movie, right? One movie that'll make you a lot of money. And then you're getting 11 movies that aren't so great or aren't aren't just going to be the money makers in a way. And basically, this is a way that the studios could pay for the entire process 
throughout. And this is why studios could produce up to 100, 125 movies a year each, which mm -hmm. right now, like Warner Brothers right. might make like 10 to 15. They do a lot of television, obviously. But in terms of major releases, you just knew that there was guaranteed money, essentially. So mm -hmm. um, this actually was like starting to be an antitrust issue that um, different um, governments were looking into. Certainly FDR was looking into under his government all the way back, like by 1930. It didn't really, really start to blow up until 1939, 1940, where there were a lot of questions around how this was controlled, how these major studios were working together uh, in essentially collusion that nobody could do. And that's an obvious huge antitrust issue is like if you own a certain market, you're supposed to be competing. You're not supposed to be working together to keep other people's out. Um, so the major investigations begin in 1939, 1940. They spill over into the Senate investigation. I know you had Chris Yogurst on to talk mm -hmm. about his book about the the uh, hearings around political uh, issues in films, but that was also where a lot of the Senate pushed toward an antitrust investigation into movies came. And then it comes to a spill finally in 1948 with this major Supreme Court decision, which um, I do want to be clarify. It never said that this sort of vertical integration where studios own production, distribution, and exhibition was illegal on itself it was how they used that process to essentially you know keep other competitors out of it to hurt independent filmmakers to hurt um smaller theaters and so this led to it, the basically the case gets bumped back down to the southern district of new york which many of us now are very familiar as a federal court right. after the trump's years of that being a sort of famed court um and the judge sort of um usually when you lose an antitrust case which these five major studios and then three minor studios uh all lost you get a consent decree this is basically okay you lost here's what you need to do and so over i think it's like the next five six years um, they had to change a lot of their practices. Basically, block booking got pushed down to about, I think it was three films a year, or you could package them in three mm -hmm. set blocks as opposed to 12. Um, and then the most important, where the studios had to create uh, a separate business for the theater companies. The theater companies had to be completely separate. So um, this is a creation of a company called like United Paramount Theaters. Um, Stanley Warner Theaters is the one that's broken off from Warner Brothers. Um, basically these separate companies. So um, the big effect mostly that I want to sort of emphasize what happened was that films had to compete essentially on an open market. This is why the studios went from making 100 films to only making 15 to 20 by the mid 50s is because they only could make hits. They couldn't guarantee this money in the way that the film studios had been built up. And that's really the key of why the um, United States government in 1948 thought that antitrust was so useful and good is because it forced this competition. Now, there was a lot of fallout. Theaters didn't actually like what happened in many ways because there was a shortage. Um, but it did essentially change the industry. And then, you know, you can go into the 50s and 60s. A lot of people see the paramount decision as what creates what we call the new Hollywood, right? This 1970s mm -hmm. renaissance of the godfather, Steven Spielberg, Martin Scorsese, because the studios had to sort of play by different rules. So that's my sort of brief recap of the paramount in, uh, the paramount uh, decrees. Right. And so now we, we get to a point in history where the, the, 
the industry has changed so much and the means of getting movies to people have changed so much mm-hmm. that it, it they don't really make as much sense anymore. So what what exactly uh, what exactly was the reasoning uh, a couple years back when the Paramount decrees were, you know, a rolled, rolled back? And what, what are some of the uh, potential consequences of that? Yeah, so, I mean, when um, the Assistant Attorney General, um, Malcolm Derham, I don't know how to pronounce his name, um, <laughs> so I apologize, um, basically said, um, like, there was a whole part that when Jeff Sessions was the Attorney General, that they were going to look into what are all called these horse and buggy decrees, right? Like, industries that just don't operate the way they do. They're stuck in the horse and buggy era. Now, in a lot of ways, the Paramount decree, um, when antitrust uh, issues changed in the 1970s. This is where, like, the famed book Robert Bork's The Antitrust uh, Paradox came out. Um, basically, under the Reagan industry, there had been a lot of deregulation of antitrust. And for years, people have been getting exceptions to the antitrust. Like, uh, there's, I've been doing some history research into this, and it's like uh, Paramount asked if they could keep one theater, which they were going to turn into an entertainment venue that didn't show movies. So there was a lot of exceptions. But under the Reagan industry, this got, like, super charge where this is where like someone like summer redstone who passed away this year right owned uh, viacom this company mm-hmm. that owns paramount as well as owned um his own set of theaters right like there's rules about like can you like have cooperation between them no you have to keep them separate um you know you always have to have an open market for how these films compete um but there was all these exceptions that were happening through the 80s and 90s where a lot of people said by say the time that bill clinton became president you basically consolidated the industry in a lot of ways not entirely and not perfect so one of the reasons that they wanted to go back and look at this paramount decree was one is it effective as a method if we have all these um, sort of exceptions? That's absolutely no. And the two, as you mentioned, right, because the nature of distribution and exhibition has changed so much because people are more likely to watch films at home on streaming. The DVD market has changed in a lot of ways. And the just the entire nature of who's even involved in the Paramount Decrees, right? Disney was not a member of the Paramount Decrees. Right. Um, who's, like Netflix is not part of the Paramount Decrees. Now, there's a reason say a company like Disney didn't say go out and buy a bunch of theaters and turn them into Disney plexes, which is specifically because what we might call um, scholars sometimes called a legal fiction. Um, mm-hmm. This means like a law that everyone follows, even though it's not a law in the books, right? If, if Disney goes right. out and bought a bunch of theaters, they probably get investigated at some point, And that means opening the books. And it's they, they have so much power in the industry over amc regal all these other lows all these other places that like why would they even necessarily bother that so i think there's a lot of questions of well is this really going to change anything last summer when judge annalisa torres officially um rescinded the decrees she looked at the situation and was like none of this necessarily makes sense um like if street like if there maybe needs to be new regulations on the industry related to streaming but in terms of people and how theater owners work now there was one exception which was this block booking issue i talked about which has a two-year sunset decree so that will Mm -hmm. go out of operation i believe summer of 2022 and that's like because she recognized that that obviously will still have a lot of power 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, this is what I when I when I talk to uh, folks like James Emanuel Shapiro, who mm-hmm. uh, worked uh, for Neon and Draft House Films, he said that this is the thing that most concerns him: the the process of block booking yep. and the uh, the the power that that studios, in particular Disney, let's be honest yep. at this point, mm-hmm. um, has to say to uh, especially smaller theater chains like your your. Uh, your your Alamos or your you know arc lights or whatever. Okay, you you have to put our movie on your biggest screen for twelve straight weeks, um, and you have to take all of them, um, and you have to put them all on all of your screens. And that 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 you know what that does is it kind of destroys the market for smaller distributors and smaller filmmakers. Uh, the the indies, uh, for lack of a better term, will have a have a hard time getting space on on those screens. I mean, do you? Do you foresee that being a problem or like, frankly, you know, with with how much covid has changed everything is 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 the is the concern over theaters even uh, a, a real operating going concern at this point? It's like, yeah, it's the billion dollar question in so many ways It's like, is this a concern? I mean, we can say like Disney has been stiff arming the big chains for years. I mean, there was a big story when um, Star Wars The Last Jedi came out. I think Disney requested 65% of all profits of week one. All the the ticket sales, right? Yeah, Yeah, yeah. exactly. Like a huge percentage. I think, you know, usually it's closer. It can be like to, you know, fluctuates film by film, right? This is part of what um, they wanted to do with the USV Paramount in 48 was like have a contract by contract issue. Every film Mm -hmm. has to compete. And like, Obviously, with both consolidation under the major theater chains like Regal, like Lowe's um, and AMC, like this is allowed sort of more standardization of contracts and everything, but allowed also larger companies like Disney to start push arming. I think the question is generally, like uh, as you say, one that we should be worried about. We're just not worried about exactly how and what it's going to be. And I think this is a lot of the rationality why the Department of Justice thought this might be okay, mostly because, to put it in the most blunt terms, Disney might not want to waste their time um, taking up every screen with every film when they can necessarily have people sign up for Disney+. Plus. Mm-hmm. Right? That streaming right. was changing the business so much that it wasn't going to be clear what the process is. I would be absolutely terrified and worried because, right, like uncertainty in any industry um, makes your business worried and makes, you know, your investors worried. Nobody knows it's going to happen. And COVID has thrown uh, an entire, like, question into this. And, like, you know, I've listened to interviews with the new CEO of Drafthouse, who's really, you know, I think believes in the theatrical and I think recognizes that there's an audience for theatrical that wants to see some blockbusters, but also likes to see other movies at the time. I think the question is, like, as Disney can, say, you know, use its arm to push uh, theaters to make these sort of bad decisions or lose out on the profits that are guaranteed with your Star Wars, with your Marvel, that's going to be the big question. I think there was a big story that, um, you know, Matt Solar Sykes wrote about this one or two years ago with repertory titles where Disney is pushing theaters that used to show Alien or Die Hard, these 20th Century Fox films that they had acquired that, you know, love to do midnight screens and telling them, no, you can't do that because we have labeled you in this way. And if, again, like... Mm -hmm. 
we're kind of limiting the ways that a theater can sort of compete in a market and one company is making a lot of those decisions. And I think that's where you can start to see the issues of an antitrust going on, right? There's no question, there's no um, law against monopolization. It's when you use your monopolization to refuse to deal, to control yeah. the market, to decide what the competition outside that market can be in something that you necessarily don't even run in. Sure. And, you know, this is the this is another thing I wanted to talk to you a little bit about. You sent me a draft paper that you had been yeah. working on about uh, about monopolization. And, and you know, the, the, the kind of standard we have right now is does it hurt the consumer? Yeah. Um, and there are different ways to look at, you know, hurting the consumer. Does it limit choice? Does it, you know, but the, but the basic idea is if consumers aren't paying higher prices, right, then they're, then you're going to get a lot of like blind eye turned. Mm -hmm. Um, what I thought was interesting in your, in your, in your paper was the, the idea of looking at it as a, uh, as, as a, a monopoly as a way to hurt labor yeah um and monopoly is a way to kind of constrict uh uh choices for for where people can work and i'm wondering um you know if we're looking at this age of consolidation i mean mgm is going to get bought by somebody yeah. that's going to cut down we're, we're going to have one fewer studio mm -hmm. um if mgm falls you know who knows what happens to sony and who knows what happens you know it's etc it's a there's there's a potential domino effect here uh, what what impact does this have on the labor market? And like, does that will that play into, you know, how how regulators and legislators look at this and how how what they decide to do with your Netflixes, your Disney's and Disney Pluses and all that? Yeah, and this has sort of been the new thinking in antitrust. Sometimes it's sometimes called like antitrust hipsterism, essentially, mm -hmm. um, sort of like around we're gentrifying antitrust. Yeah, we're really gentrifying. <laughs> I mean, avocado toast actually has a lot to deal with uh, this. I mean, partially because um, you know this is uh, comes out of a paper out of uh, Yale Law Review by Lena Khan, who I think is actually younger than me, and I'm already pretty young. Um, but she basically made this case for what she called Amazon's antitrust paradox of like how you could look at Amazon following every rule of the law, except for the fact that they would often enter markets where they would lose money until all their competitors lost money, and then they would be the only person in that market. The most famous example being they were running, uh, I know you're a parent, so you must realize like the difficulty of this, uh, this diaper subscription company sure. that was yeah. using Amazon. Amazon saw the data of how successful it was, started their own version of it, uh, you know, exact similar knockoff product, but could offer it for so less until the company had to like fall under Amazon's control. I yeah. think Amazon eventually just bought them like once they had, you know, hurt their business enough to get it to the price they wanted. So, yeah. right, this is like a sort of closer to like producers, uh, the labor. And I think one of those issues that we start to see in terms of how this, how, you know, production might start to be transformed. Now you look at, say, a company like Netflix, which I'm trying to work on in this draft paper, right? Netflix is making a ton of stuff, um, mm -hmm. like a surprising amount of stuff, right? The reason that Netflix, uh, you know, they debt finance, uh, they just reported that they were even this year for the first time, but that's because they lowered production during the pandemic. That was sure, the sure. only reason they yeah. like had been successful, right? They're they run on their stock essentially so i think the question is right like they 
have tried to follow the labor rules. They've tried to follow every sort of part of this. But I think the question that really comes down to it that's going to be really important is like how streaming makes money, which is a really, really weird question and doesn't really operate in the same way, right? Because if we say, let's just talk about the Writers Guild. Obviously, the Writers Guild has been a very powerful union since the 1930s. They've had a lot. And right, like one of the rules they said is like, okay, we're no longer be employed full time by the studios in the 1950s, um, but we're going to get these residual checks. Sometimes the check's going to be like, you know, you see writers sometimes post a check and it's like 67 cents, but that's still 67 cents. And there's way that it's like if you make a successful movie you will continue to get those checks like you know larry david doesn't need to work anymore because seinfeld checks keep coming in sure but with streaming how do you distribute that money is i think one of the big questions and this was i think one of the weird things that happened with the pandemic and this is kind of getting closer to how then antitrust might come into this issue is um there were going to be a big set of union fights um last summer um directors guild had done their renegotiating their contract then sag the screen actors guild and the writers guild but when the pandemic hit like nobody wanted to do a big prolonged like you know, labor strike during the middle of a pandemic in which right. nobody's getting money. Um, so, you know, they agreed on terms that seem pretty strong. I know, I forget if it was the Writers Guild or the Screen Actors Guild. I'm going to say it's the Screen Actors Guild. Uh, the Los Angeles segment of the Screen Actors Guild voted against the new contract with the studios while the larger SAG voted for it. And there's a lot of people in SAG. So like there's, I think, questions and those contracts are going to run until 2023. But in general, you're going to start to see because of the question of how do you distribute, how do you allocate money between the people who are actually making films and how much money is coming into the studios, I think a question, and as, say, there's less studios, they're going to have more options to stiff arm. And if there's less stuff being made for anywhere and anything, then there's going to be less money to go around. And I think all these things are adding up to these questions of when are the studios going to start, say, getting people to take lesser deals because there are no other options in the market. Um, And especially, this is the important question with streaming, if you need to get your film on Netflix to get an audience at all, period, because the theatrical market's not uh, as strong, you know, the market for um, paid VOD, so this would be buying the film on iTunes, buying the film on Apple, and everyone's moving the subscription, they're going to have a lot of power to sort of push those prices down, almost to the point where people are going to say, I can't work in this business anymore because it's just not i can't afford it essentially so yeah that was a lot of points i realized yeah. i was running well, no, through, it, but. i mean there the interesting thing about all this is just the the total one thing that you incur you encounter over and over again when you're talking about streaming is just the total lack of uh transparency and accountability in terms of viewership yep. right so like in 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 the theatrical business you you see box office grosses mm-hmm. and you're like okay this is doing well and this isn't and you know hollywood math being what it is you know games get played and all that but like there's at least some idea of what is was a success and what isn't you know on on standard tv you have nielsen ratings and you have ad rates tied to that and there's some 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 way to but with the, in the world of streaming there's nothing there's just what what netflix chooses to give us and Which then what bizarre. what 
Which with the 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 anecdotes, the data anecdotes, as the entertainment <laughs> strategy guy, one of my favorite yeah, accounts puts good. it. You know, uh, I it, it, like it. It they they are they're totally cherry picked, and they mean they mean nothing really because it's two minutes of whatever. You know, the the I guess my my question here is is there is there a a is there a way to try to increase transparency uh, uh, through antitrust rules in a way that will both help the actual actors and filmmakers and all that uh, figure out what is doing well and what they should be getting paid for? Or is that not not a is that a non-starter? Yeah, I mean, there's two things here. I think first is and I'd be curious if the studios agree this once they all have their major streaming platforms, um, right? Like, I guess Universal's the studio that's a little far behind and Paramount Plus is launching this summer and we'll mm. see how that does is I think the studios might and with the labor groups may push for something akin to a digital box office, right? Like there's no reason, like if you go back to variety pages in the 1930s and 40s, there's not like a weekly box office there at the time. It became an issue when um, you needed to tie specific, uh, you know, people to how much the movies made at the box office, right? When like, this is like the line, like you're only as good as your last picture, comes around mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, right? Because you had people like Kirk Douglas or uh, Natalie Wood, right? As independent creators, sometimes working as themselves as producers, right? They needed to show the next studio that their films made money. And that's sort of the start of where we got the major box office as a weekly report that the all studios agreed to do, right? There's no, like, they have to do mm -hmm. like quarterly interest, like, reporting as you know mandated by the federal government but there's never a rule that said you had to release the box office numbers as much as everyone agreed to it and now yeah. we're seeing because we've entered the space now like studios don't want to do this netflix doesn't want you to know like how many people and it's also weirder and harder to see exactly what how like right like when you go to a movie theater most people are going to watch the movie. I mean, we can complain about cell phones, but like most right, people are right, there right. to watch it. You watch, you see those, you know, fan videos of the crowds at the Avengers Endgame screening all like everyone's there and there. People just don't watch things at home. And like the little bit the Nielsen ratings have started to do on digital um, sort of streaming numbers, like it, they're very weird because they give you number of minutes and all that. And um it just makes it difficult. But in terms of an antitrust question, and this is like one where like someone needs to break the law first, and it's hard to say like Netflix has broken any law as much as they instead mm -hmm. just operate as a monopoly, right? But would to say your streaming businesses have to be separate from your production and distribution businesses, like or whatever distribution we define as in a way. But like mm -hmm. imagine if Netflix as a did when before it started making movies was just a streaming company they were just the platform and a lot of companies use netflix as a streaming platform a lot of smaller companies uh kino lorber um zeitgeist these are small yeah, art yeah. house independent um distributors right because there's like a valuable in getting access to that market now right they hit 200 million subscribers uh just announced last week uh this week um that is like you know, a market that if they just operated as a streaming market, well, then like people would have to compete and they would, you know, compete to get licensing deals from, you know, different studios. And it would be, you'd essentially recreate the market for um, like competition and people would want to make good movies or, well, I mean, people watch 
really people, bad stuff on streamings, people, but like people would want to make movies. People would want to make them, <laughs> and you'd want to make them good, and you'd want to compete. But Netflix, right? Their strategy right now is to make as much Netflix content in the hope that Netflix content survives, and that when you go onto Netflix, um, that you're I mean, one, that you never unsubscribe, which is the big right. thing. But two, that like hopefully you just get really into Netflix content and so they can just not rely on other people. Now, like Netflix isn't banning anyone from putting things on Netflix as long as you, you know, pay enough money, et cetera, et cetera. They haven't mm -hmm. at least like, you know, done anything like that that I've heard of. But like, I think it would operate as a very, very different company if it just operated as a streaming company. And I think it would be a profitable company in a lot of ways, which is the other mm -hmm. bizarre element. And I think the same could be said for if Disney, like, you know, like Disney didn't have to oper operate by, like, you know, Disney Plus was a separate company. If Paramount Plus was a separate company, Hulu was a separate company, right? Like people liked Hulu, I liked Hulu uh, a lot because it just had quote unquote, the TV shows and it didn't matter what, you know, company. And I think that would be a place if the United States government and whoever under the, you know, um, our new attorney general, uh, who's the guy, the, oh, Merrick Garland. Merrick, Merrick Garland. Merrick Garland. Characters coming back. We love it. We love <laughs> to see it, folks. Um, but right, if the, uh, under Merrick Garland, if they wanted to start investigating this um, or starting to look at, like, that's, you know, putting the, horse before the buggy because that's the yeah. end of the road you'd first want to prove the antitrust but i think then the other question that i haven't mentioned here and this goes back to your question about numbers right is data and what netflix can do with the data that they see about how people watch content and they can make better things that nobody else has access this goes back to the amazon diaper story right amazon sees what people buy sees what people are browsing and build you know reverse engineers the right. products by owning the market that everyone has to use, but they're the only ones that get to see that market. So I think you would, could argue at some point, Netflix might come under investigation or scrutiny for the same. The problem being, of course, is the movie industry lingo. Nobody knows anything. We have no idea right. what, like, I, you know, if you told me like the female Sherlock Holmes movie, Enola Holmes would be a big hit, which... I don't know if it was a big hit as much as certain numbers sort of maybe describe it, right? right? Like, you know, that's the that's the difficult question. But yeah, I think the question of separation is one that's really important. Well, do you think that? So I guess then this this is the the big this is the sixty four thousand dollar question, right? Is it are we going to see a a a move to separate the actual streaming services from production to kind of uh, you know get rid of that what amounts to vertical integration almost mm -hmm. i mean you know yeah. outside of netflix actually making the tv in your in your living room it's it's a pretty fully integrated uh, uh system that they've got there and same with disney and and you know the the other streamers are are trying for the same i mean are, are we are we what is that would that be target number 1 if you were looking to to split split these companies up I would, I would definitely start. I mean, it's interesting, right? Because there's actually a bunch more companies involved, as you mentioned, right? They're not making the TVs. Um, Roku actually has a right. large monopoly as well on this market, as we saw with the fight between Roku mm -hmm. and HBO Max and not allowing it until they finally negotiated this deal because there's no way HBO Max was releasing Wonder Woman 84 without Roku. Right. Just because that's what people... And then, of course, your internet broadband 
providers. I mean, this sure. is where the real question, which I think is the real monopoly, actually, that we haven't mentioned is HT, AT&T, WarnerMedia, HBO Max, right? Because AT&T mm-hmm. owns the cable subscriber that you have to do to watch streaming. And right, they can make it right. HBO Max is free if you have AT&T internet or you have an AT&T cell phone and everyone else has to pay. And so basically they're hoping like if HBO Max is successful, which so far it's been kind of a disaster, right? Is that when you go to get your next cell phone, you decide, oh, I guess I'll switch to AT&T so I don't have to pay a hundred dollars in HBO Max and right, right and then lock you in. Um, I mean, this is the other big part where I think that comes into way. It's like how are these companies going to lock us in? This is like um, I don't know if you followed the Epic Games versus Apple antitrust lawsuit at all. Um, uh, v- vaguely yeah. around Fortnite and how people yeah, yeah. like have to pay, like whether you can buy things on the in-game app. I've never played this game, but I'm teaching it this semester. Um, as you play games like whether apple gets a cut of it or not and like well apple's argument is well just go get a different go get a google phone right like you know it's an open market but it's then it's like well i'm locked into my subscription for two years right i bought this iphone and i'm paying it off for another like 12 months it's not just easy to move to a new phone and this is what i think we might start to see with the movie industry in a lot of ways of who gets locked into these questions. So I think if you start to look at where, um, you know, the questions of competition don't work in the ways that we want to see. And I think a good question would be to say, like, look at someone like a Martin Scorsese, right? Like um, his last two films, like uh, The Irishman was made for Netflix and this new one, The Killing of the Flower Moons, um, mm-hmm. is going to be made for Apple. And I mean, one, he is asking for $200 million, which is a lot, uh, we can say, like, you know, for these small dramas that don't necessarily make that much money. But I think a better way to see it is that he's saying, you know, open I have to go to these companies because they're the only ones that will give me this money, right? Like, I think mm-hmm. actually Killing of the Flowers Moons was going to be made by Paramount, and then yeah. Paramount essentially bought. And part of that is because Paramount used to be able to make money on these films by putting them in theaters and then on DVD and then eventually onto, say, a streaming platform. And Netflix has essentially killed that business. Now, they haven't done anything illegal to do that, but essentially they're sucking up all the talent in one direction. And we'll see competition maybe reemerge as everyone has a streaming platform. But again, I think it's this question of like, you know, prices are gonna start to go down. Um, You know, you're not gonna be able, if you can't make as much money with the theatrical big market, you're gonna start to reduce prices of how much budgets are, how much labor is getting paid, whether we're talking about actors, directors, or all the way down to, you know, your gaffers. Um, And I think that's going to be the question of like, where is the money being sucked up? Is it because these companies aren't necessarily competing to get on streaming platforms as much as streaming just becomes, as we often call it, it's a dumping ground. You just dump it there. And because it's not tied to the competition movies. And I do want to say one quickly thing is, right, movies that play theatrically can make a lot of money and do well. Disney does great in the theatrical market for a reason. They put a lot of money into the films. They get the biggest stars and they get ever. And then like, you know, Kevin Feige produces this 22 film, you know, universe that everyone gets really into. Like you can do well and you can make so much money 
in the theatrical market and all these companies are making the decision to you know stick with streaming it seems mostly we'll see post pandemic what this really looks yeah. like um and essentially i think they're shortchanging how much like money they can do when they compete on a larger open market that's not the same as a streaming platform yeah yeah, I mean, I, I I think about the idea of block booking and Netflix uh, and, and HBO Max a lot because I, yeah. part of me says, part of me thinks like, okay, uh, you know, Netflix is basically saying, well, if you want Stranger Things, you also, you know, you gotta you gotta take all these shows along with our service, right? <laughs> yeah. But 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 it's more like a television channel, right? It's more like the classic HBO model, like you know, you 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 do this, and I I I still I am. Uh, I, I I still kind of prefer you know the old the old Bork model of what is best for the consumer, yeah. and I I don't know I don't know what the actual answer is here. I mean I you know I I know I know what I like. I like going to the movie theater. Um, I know that I am of a dying breed, uh, and and that you know the the streaming is the future. And I just don't I'm not a hundred percent sure uh, what that what that's going to look like or how good it is going to be for uh, for for the consumer frankly yeah and i think i don't know i think you're getting into something you know like there is value in the the consumer welfare standard as a way to look toward antitrust i think like you know on one side and this is like where the film snob comes at me it's like well why is everything on netflix so garbagey and why don't i want to watch it all right they produce two films a year, like you know last year i watched the the spike lee film defy bloods mm -hmm. which i thought was great um but like you know you see these other things that are coming out and you're like what who's watching this i don't want to watch yeah. this like you know and it's i you know i could say maybe the same well i'm not the biggest fan of like the marvel cinematic universe but i recognize its interest and but again like this was the value that we saw, and maybe this is like just trying to create a new historical reality, is in the post-Paramount era when you got to the 50s, like you saw a bunch of people recognizing that were there were different markets for films, right? In the 30s, studios made like two types of movies, prestige dramas and B-movies that were like Westerns essentially, right? And like, I, there's so much great diversity in there. I love those films, but right, they made films like people describe it as an assembly line for a reason. It was a lot mm -hmm. of like placing and replacing, right? And then when you got to the 50s after post Paramount, you got like, well, these theaters in New York decide, oh, let's import, you know, French films and Japanese films because there's an audience for that. And then Roger Corman's like, let's make B movies for drive ins in a lot of ways. And the studios were like, we're going to make the Ten Commandments and Ben Hurst because we're the only ones that can do that, right? You had this large market because there was a big diversity. And as you're seeing with Netflix, and this comes back to your question about companies like Drafthouse and, um, you know, Neon and how they're going to compete in this market, everything just kind of gets pushed. And there isn't like, what really feels like is there isn't a chance to sort of explore and feel like you're making different choices. Um, and I think that's the thing that worries me a lot is that lack yeah. of feeling you have a choice in the market it's like well you know there might be really good films on netflix but like if you can't have a chance to even have them on the front page 
right? Then like, what's the yeah. value in that? Like, you know, the algorithm's trying to push you towards certain things. And then, you know, if nobody's watching your film because it's buried under these algorithms and you can't even show it on the front page and you can't, nobody gets to know it's out and you have to spend all this extra money in advertising and just hoping someone remembers the title and searches mm -hmm. for it. Um, yeah. I think that's the question where we are looking at questions of how consumers benefit. It might not be the question of price, but I think that's where I think that's where Bork standard and I'd have to go back and read his work. But I think he did talk a lot about like that idea that like consumer welfare was more than price. And like, yeah. right, if we just want things to be as cheap as possible, then like, you know, then stop producing films and just like hope people keep watching Stranger Things for all time with no other seasons, right? Like, yeah. we we want things more than price. We want Apple products over PC products because we right. like the lifestyle brand of it or what have you. And like, that's a part of the consumer welfare that we should be considering. Yeah. Uh, so I always like to ask uh, folks what I should have asked. Uh, what 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 should people know about uh, antitrust as it relates to Hollywood in the in the next year or so? Here, what what uh, was I what is was I foolish enough not to ask? Oh yeah. Um. So obviously none of the studios are under investigation, and I don't think they will be. Like it'll like. I'd be like maybe something starts getting started under the Biden administration, um, but I don't think it is. But it is important to watch these tech um, cases. So that's the one I mentioned, Epic v. Apple, which is not there's a private suit, but I think will change the market a lot. And then the antitrust investigations into Facebook and Google and I'm sure an Amazon one will be coming as well, basically, because those were the four that were investigated by um the uh this the congressional hearings uh last summer um mm -hmm. which is uh, pretty interesting so i think watching those and watching if antitrust theory more than anything else starts to change as these cases are litigated is going to be the good question so like um there's a google there's three different google cases um the one i'm actually most curious about is the one that is i People thought of it as like the bastard stepchild because it's like only Republican um, uh, state attorney generals. It's coming out of Texas, um, but it's the one about the digital ad space buy, and it's basically the classic monopoly where like Google has a monopoly on how ads are bought and sold through the internet. They own all three parts of it. So I think like you know, there's some questions that maybe it's not as strong enough case compared to these other issues of like having Google as the default search browser on the iPhone, which I think is actually a weaker case in a lot of ways, um, mm -hmm. because like Europe already tried it, it didn't work at all as like, cause people just still want to Google cause Google's pretty good at what they do. But I think yeah. so watching these tech cases are going to be the major question is, especially if there's an Amazon case, I think, especially cause Amazon has its own movie studio and TV studio and is trying to control this market. Um, and I think those are going to be the cases to watch. I'd be very surprised if we see one um, open on the movie industry. I think just because like there's going to be a lot more focus on, say, getting movies back um, this year yeah. and next year um, as we build up the from the coronavirus pandemic. But I think those are the case to watch. And I think that's going to be really, really key. It's just like as 
people shift their thoughts on big tech, whether we're talking about like, you know, and that seems to be becoming a bipartisan issue, right? Both Josh Hawley and Amy Klobuchar have antitrust Mm -hmm. books coming out in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. that are focused on tech. I think, you know, and the tech industry is becoming Hollywood in so many ways. Apple makes movies, Amazon makes movies. Um, Google, YouTube has has a long uh, a control on this market as well um you know like i think there's going to be questions that are coming out of this uh that are all related so watch the big tech uh antitrust and i think you'll start to see where the winds are shifting in hollywood cool well thank you very much for joining me today peter really appreciate it uh is there anything is there anything you want to plug you want to you 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 have you have a book you have a you have podcasts what do you what do you, what should the people uh, do to get more Labuza in their life. Yeah, um, I mean, you can check out, um, I do a lot of academic writing that's coming out this year and it's going to be a little under paywalls, but you can always contact me on Twitter at Labuza Movies to find out uh, more. But I also run a podcast called Framing Media. Um, it's an offshoot of my old podcast, The Cinephiliacs, where I interview other scholars who are working on issues related to just generally media. One episode is recently about these environmental films the government made in the 60s another's coming out about fan subtitling of the of the movie carol in china and how activists are trying to use subtitles to sort of uh you know combat the chinese crackdown on queer media um so i'm kind of looking all around the place of like movies of television of radio of new internet of looking at how things are changing so that's called framing media if you search it and my last name it's still at the old url the cinephiliacs.net but we'll we'll get working and just yeah <laughs> check me out on twitter i post a lot of jokes and occasionally threads about history and antitrust and thank you so much sunny absolutely uh we will be back next week with another episode of the bulwark goes to hollywood see you then mm-hmm.